Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Let's ask God to be with us today, touch us, everything we do or say. We can't do it alone. We need God's help, so I pray that he would touch us. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God of heaven, Lord Jesus, we love you today. Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus Christ that you would touch us, strengthen us, Lord God. I pray right now that you would anoint our efforts, Lord God, our minds, our hearts. God, I pray that you touch right now, strengthen us, everything, Lord God, we have, we do in your name, Lord God. So I pray that you touch, Lord God, strengthen us, Lord God, open our hearts, our minds, Lord God, that we may receive, Lord God, and retain your word, Lord God, for it is given unto us, Lord God, for life and strength, Lord God. I pray this day in the holy name of Jesus, we love you, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. All across this land today, there will be churches that meet, and throughout the day they will pray, and in essence, with some sense, they will say, God, in the name of Jesus, we ask this, not really realizing that that quote they just said is actually a one God statement, God, in the name of Jesus, we ask this. Hallelujah, God that robed himself in flesh and came to this earth is what they're asking the God to perform that in. And so we come in here, hallelujah. I've, once in a while, I, I don't do it real often, but I love to read about the human body and just how wonderfully and fearfully, as the Bible says, that we are made. The senses that God put in us and just how really, truly sensitive our fingertips is. You know, I even looked it up one time. The lightest touch that your fingertips can feel is truly amazing. And just uh, in our, our temperature of our body, it's not in degrees, it's in tenths of a degree, either way, up or down, and you know something's wrong with this body. God put it so sensitive and just... To sound, it's just this, just how sensitive we are. And I'll just tell you an old concrete finisher's trick that, we, that we've known for years that if you take, I poured concrete all just about my life, and if you take a level concrete floor like this, and here again is a sensitivity that God has put in our feet. And if you're walking across a level floor, if you take and hold your eyes, if there's nothing in front of you, obviously, if you hold your eyes level, God has put in, there's already the sense of pull on our, on our body, pull down. 
You just walk level and your body will let you know if that floor goes up or down. And us as concrete finishers, we've known this a long, a long time because when the contractor comes out, <laughs> if there's a spot in the floor, we keep him away from that area because just in walking across that floor, just God has put that within us. Just walking across your feet will let your body know the floor has went down or it's came back up. And just, I've said all that to say this, don't let the enemy trick you. Them is senses, senses that God has put in our natural body. So don't come in here and tell yourself, God would never touch me spiritually because that's a lie of the enemy. And I can't tell myself, you know, I've said it, if we need to repent, let's repent. Let's come in here. God is gonna speak to his church. He's gonna talk to us and make it personal. God is gonna talk to me. He is gonna speak to me. He was not giving me all these sensitive in my physical body and not let me come in his house and then not speak to me spiritually because God is going to speak. And it may be like Job. He might have to answer us out of the whirlwind, but God is still going to speak. He is going to do that. And so we know that he's gonna do this. So just we know of our God and it's literally like in Genesis one twenty six when God said, let us make man. I look at that as a way of God just so eager. Now at this point in the Bible, God hadn't even yet breathed in the nostrils of man the breath of life. And God is already saying, I can't wait to make myself a body and inhabit that body because I'm not always gonna be in spirit form. Let us make man. The spirit and the body is gonna unite one day and I will make myself a body that I will inhabit this flesh, that I will make man in my image that they will have. And say, I, I know in, in 831 in Romans, the Bible tells us that um, Paul sums it up. Basically, Romans the eighth chapter is just life in the spirit. And in 831, he just says, what shall we say to these things? In other words, all that he's listed, he just says it like this. If God be for us, who can be against us? And we could just say it like this. God has no equal. And if God is on our side, then who in the world or in the world as we don't know, who in the universe that could ever be against us? There is no one that could be against us because God has no equal. Nothing that could come against us could stop us, hinder us, could be against us. Paul is saying nothing, nothing could. My title is going to be um, The Object of Our Devotion. And I'll tell you uh, in just a few minutes where I got that title from. I'm going to read a little bit from John. Uh, I'm going to focus just a little bit on the fourth and fifth verse. But I just want to read starting with verse 1. St. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things was made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. 
and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. In him, number four says, in him was life. So John is telling us pure and simple, if I want life, period, it's gonna be found in Jesus Christ. In him, in Jesus was life. That's what he's saying, in him was life, and that life was the light, the light of revelation, the light. Go all the way back, because I said John's writings, for you could, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just started the, the beginning of Jesus' body, is the way I would put it. But John goes back to the beginning of the beginning. He goes back literally to the creation of the earth. And he says literally when he tells us that the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he goes all the way back and he's telling them and then he says in him for all the way back from the beginning in him was life and that life was the light. We have faced, we have seen it in scripture all the way from the beginning there's light and there's darkness. If you want life, it's found in Jesus and the light that we're gonna find in this life is found in Jesus. So he's telling them this. And number five is not a paradox. He said that this light shineth in darkness and the doctors comprehended it not. What it means is not this light shineth in darkness and the darkness could not receive it. The darkness chose not to receive it. It's what it is. It's just God shone in darkness and the darkness itself chose not to receive that light. It's, it's just literally, it's literally ministers has preached to us all our life. You must reject this. God is gonna touch us. He is gonna physically, spiritually move on us. We are gonna feel God minister to us. You must spiritually reject this. You must physically get up and walk out of here and reject God. So this is what it's saying in verse five, that the light did shine in darkness, but darkness chose not to receive it. So they chose not to receive it, but it said that. So God did shine this light. That light was the light of men. The light was the life. So if we want, if I want life, that's where it is found. Now, I want you to turn with me uh, to Matthew, let's go to Matthew 7. This is the Lord, this is right after Matthew seven thirteen. This is in Matthew, the seventh chapter. Uh, this is right after basically the golden rule. He says in Matthew 7 and 13, this is what the Lord says. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, okay, enter ye in at the straight gate. Now, the word straight here is not our definition of straight. Where it says, enter ye in at the straight gate. If, if And I don't wanna sound arrogant, but if our definition of that is like enter ye in at the straight gate, meaning straight, that's not what the Bible means here. It's not straight in straight like we would say if you point down something straight. That's not what the Bible means. 
It's, I look this up, and I, I will tell you this first. In, in the Jewish canons, it says it like this. I want to deal with, with gates here just for a second. When the public went into a city, we deal with wall. Back then, the cities were fortified. Basically, they had walls around them. So to get in that city, you must go through a gate. So to get in that city, a gate, according to the Jewish canon, had to be 16 cubics wide. Now, on the side of that, on the side of the city, there was what was some private gates that was called a straight gate. Now, they was only four cubics wide, and they had literally, they were stuff pressed around them. So when you look this word up straight, it don't mean straight. It means narrow, compressed by objects around them, and it means something that you must seek out. Because God is saying here, because straight is a gate, narrow, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that findeth. But he compares that, uh, and broad is a way that leadeth to destruction. I think he's going back to this Old Testament terminology about the wall cities. He said, everyone is going in the 16 cubic wide gate. If you want me, what does the Bible tells us? Jesus is the door. If you want me, you're gonna have to seek me out. You're gonna have to go in because the straight gates went into a private residence on the side. So Jesus is saying, I think, you don't have to jump on here with me, this is me. Jesus was saying, I think that you must seek this out. You must go in a private residence. So I think he was saying, when you go in a private or a straight gate, you're seeking me out. You're not willing to go in the, the, the broad 16 cubics. You're seeking me out. So he said that you must go in the straight gate, which you had to seek out. And, and the, the Bible says that it's only four, 16, and then from city to city, the roads had to be eight cubics. Now, herein is pure and simple mercy. And I, I, I won't ask you, but I wish I could just ask you one-on-one personally. But in the Old Testament, we know that there were cities of refuge. This is when someone made a horrible mistake and needed mercy. And they needed it fast. There was six of them. There was a road that went to that. Now, I want you to follow me here just a second. I'm a numbers man, and I apologize for that. To seek out the straight gate was four. Road to road was eight. Where everybody went in, the public access was 16. Now, according to the Jewish canon, if you went to the city of refuge... God said to find me, you needed to go in the private, which was four. How wide do you think the city of refuge, the road had to be? It was 32 cubics wide. And I thought, here is mercy. God said, you find me. You go in just the private way, which is four. And when you need mercy, I got a road 32 cubics wide. According to the Jewish canons, this is how wide that road had to be. Let nothing impede you because I will give you the mercy that you need. 32. Now, he said, enter in at the straight gate. So 
We must seek it out. We find it. So this is what he is saying. Now, if you will, I want you to just turn a few chapters over with me to the Bible where it says in Matthew 16, this is where, uh, 16, 18, this is where they're, they're taken. They've made their declaration of who they think the Lord is. So he's telling, um, the, uh, telling the apostles. So he tells them, and I want to read in verse 18. Now he says, this is after they, they gather together. The Lord speaks to them. The apostle Peter makes this declaration of faith who he says that the Lord is. And this is the Lord's response. He tells him in 17 that flesh and blood hadn't received it. The spirit has told you this. And he says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here again, this is me. Now, I've said before, I think this goes back to this same terminology where the people entered into the city by a gate. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, it was like, I think the Lord was was saying where he said the gates of hell, we know that the, the, the councils, they was in ancient times, they had these wall cities. You entered in through the, the gates. So it's like this. Many wise and noble men sat in the gates. They held councils in the gates of the city. This we know from the Bible. So I think God was saying is that. Where, in other words, it was like this. Where when you have a, a, a city, a strong city, the gates and you have the army of that city that was a strong army, when it left, it would exit that city through the gates. So when you have the, the king or whatever, the leader of that country, when he come up and, and put out a decree of the army or he had a soldier that went out that, that he had to fulfill something, he left through the gate. So I think God was saying no scheme of man, no scheme of Satan, no army sent out from the enemy. The gates of hell, whatever they sent forth, was going to prevail against my church. It was not going to happen. No scheme of man, no scheme of the enemy, because whatever the enemy produced through the gates is going to prevail against my church. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen because I believe the Lord was telling them, look, of the confession that you just made, it will not prevail against you nor the church that this confession is founded on because what they had just said is what God said, that is what I'm going to build my church on. And that confession is strong enough that the gates of hell is not going to prevail against it. It's just not going to happen. God said, my church is going to stand and my church is going to stand that let hell empty out all it has through the gates. They will not prevail against my church. It just will not happen. They will not do it. And now, turn with me uh, to the book of Acts. 
Acts 17. In Acts 17, let's read in, we'll start at uh, 16. It says, now when Paul waited for them, who he's waiting for is Timothy and, and uh, Timotheus. As he said, waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry. And therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the markets daily with them and that he met with. And certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what would this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preaches unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, may we know, what, may we know this, new, this new doctrine whereof thou speakest. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers that were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Now, I find that unique. They just sit around to hear what they can hear and to gain a little bit of gossip, and they call him a babbler. You've, I don't know. I don't see how he held it together but um, he took and he said where it says here in 16 that Paul was stirred in his spirit when he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry that's only used one time in the Bible it says it was wholly given to idolatry it's just utterly idolatrous is what it means we all are familiar with the saying can't see the forest for the trees well, then I would label this, can't see the city for the idols. And then when you read on this, there's some of their writers that literally says it was easier to find a God than a man in Athens because it was just, there was just so many idols there. And this, they said they took him to um, Areopagus, which is just Mars Hill, and you can read of their poetic fiction where the term Mars Hill come from, but it's where they all, there's certain philosophers where the, the big shots met and they held these councils and they were so, I guess, so theologically minded and great in their f- philosophical terms. That's where they all met. This is where they took Paul. So he's up there and, and they just hear this strange word. He's preaching some new strange doctrine to them and they want to hear it. Basically, they just wanted to hear the latest thing that they hadn't heard this. So they take Paul there, and he wants to hear about it. Now, and they called him a babbler. This is what's almost confusing to me. When you look up babbler, it's only used one time in the Bible. And what it literally means is a picker up of seeds. And it goes back to the crows where they would pick up the seeds. And it, it's just, and another definition of it would be a poor person in the fields gathering grain that was left. And I don't know, I just, this is where I, this is what it means. Maybe you can get a handle on this better than I could. 
but a picker up of seeds, a babbler. So this is where you can maybe get a better definition of it than, than I can. But it says a babbler, what they called him, the picker up of seeds. What do you do with a seed? You plant a seed for it to come up. And a babbler is a picker up of seeds. So basically, you plant a seed to produce something. So if you pick it up seeds, you're taking that away which could be produced. So this is what they call him. Something which our philosophy has a chance of being produced, you're taking it away. You're just, excuse the expression, but you're just a blabbermouth is what we would say. It's what they called him. You're just a picker up of seeds. That which we put out, you're just taking it away with your doctrine, I suppose, is the way they labeled it. But I don't know. But anyway, so let's read. Let's start at 22 and let's read down through 28. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. As I passed by and beheld your devotions, now that is where I get my title, devotions, where he reads there, I beheld your devotions. That is not where he passed by and beheld them, as we would say in church. He passed by and beheld the object of their devotions is what that means. There's so many idols. He's looking at the object of their devotions. And then he says, and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye are uh, ignorantly worship him declare unto you that God hath made the world and all the things therein that he is Lord of heaven and earth and dwelleth not in the temple made with hands neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything seeth that he giveth to all life and breath and all things and that he hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they might seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not very far from every one of us in 28 for we live for in him we live and move and have our beings as certain of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring. Now, I want to uh, do something here. I read very little as far as other than the Bible, and I'm so skeptic about reading books, but I read one one time, and <laughs> I read one one time, and Okay, I'll give that a minute. So, and what it was talking about, there was this, there was this man, and he was, uh, his family come from Puerto Rico, and he, just like we would raise up and go to church, he was raised, and he said they called it a religion, but actually it was satanic worship, and they referred to it as a religion. And he said that's all he ever knew. Um, they was just told him they referred to it as a religion. So from the from his earliest childhood, that's what he was taught. This is what we would basically say. This is church. 
and he was taught to believe this is the way that, um, and he wouldn't, in the book he describes that this is not, he wasn't really told from the beginning that you are worshiping Satan. He was told that that you are worshiping um, a God, but um, it's Satan is not really told to him from the beginning. So he goes, um, and then he is later um, singled out. He goes, and there's like twenty, I think there's twenty five of them, and he is singled out and said he's going to be mindly used and. And then he just, he's telling in the book um, what is happening. And you can just tell it's, he even tells in the book how nerve-wracking it is. And so he's singled out and he's telling him how great and mighty he's going to be. And the older he gets, and around 13 is where he really starts picking up on it, that something's not right. And then he starts to see that people actually starts to fear him. He's only 13 years old. And people actually starts to fear him. So I'm reading a book, and then when he, um, there was a certain place he would go. And then when he would go to a certain place, there was a gesture he would have to make. And before he proceeded any further, and he made this gesture, and then he continued on. And I didn't think much about it, but I kept reading. And then as I would read, it's, it's almost like something does to me like when I'm reading, a, or it's all of us, like when we read a passage in the Bible and God wants to deal with us, and it's go back to that, go back to that. And what it was, it was go back to the gesture that he made. And so I I went back and I read it and I said, you know, the gesture, there's something about that. I've heard that before somewhere. So I thought on it and finally it dawned on me. So I looked it up and in the spring of 1965, a movie, um, a TV show was brought into people's homes and it portrayed a woman, and she was just, you know, scantily dressed. And and what this woman did when she went to cast a spell, she did the exact same gesture that this man did. And what he described in the book, the principality that had control of that area, the gesture that he made, was to give tribute to that demon. And while he brings it up, there's a, a spot in the book that's called a demon's fury because one night he went to it and he didn't do it. And his brothers was younger than him but was so scared and they told him, said, you didn't do it. And he just, well, for whatever, just blew it off. So, and he tells the aftermath of that, which wasn't good. So, but I went to this and I read this and here it is, this woman and they talked about all the children, the adults in America that's doing this gesture not realizing that they're paying tribute 
to an actual demon. And I'm, I'm thinking, Lord, I never, I never watched the show, but maybe one or two times. And if you would just pardon me here, it was set up to be basically every man's fantasy. And just pardon me for saying that. The way the lady was dressed is just, you just asked her for a wish. And basically what she did when she made this gesture, she cast a spell. That was the movie. And then they, they went on and they did this, but I just said, and he actually quotes from the Old Testament when it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And they are making this gesture. And uh, the thing I found ironic, uh, ironic is that, that he said that this show became so popular when the TV producers canceled it because of the following that took with it. And then it's still, I assume, I don't know, popular today. But in the book, he describes, now he doesn't make this connection. I'm just saying this is, I made this connection. But he talks and he gives a couple um, examples. And he was 25 years. He talks about the uh, of being demon possessed and the position that he had. He talked about being carried in the spirit. The demons would put him uh, in a trance and carrying places. And, and, and I won't stay long here, but he, he talks about when he said the things that, that got him thinking. He had been taught that you are serving the most powerful deity there is. But he said he started noticing when they would go to different places to control, there's areas they could not control. And he would ask the demons, why can't we control that? And the demons would tell them it's because of the Christians. And he was told basically to just, as we would say, just leave it alone. But he would ask himself, if we're the most powerful then why can't we control them? Why do we have to make ourselves subject to them? So anyway, he takes and the Lord starts slowly doing a work in his life. So he, when the Lord actually puts it all together, I mean, it's a book, so it's a long story. But he he struggles with one part that he puts in the book and I will quote it and and he said he struggled to put this in the book, but he titled this little section, Grace and Mercy. And a person came to him and paid him to have the demons kill this woman. And what this woman was, she was a backslidden Christian that was having an affair with a man. So he summoned the demons, told them what he wanted, and the demons would carry this out for him. So... I think he said about a month goes by and he summons the demons back and said, why haven't you carried this out? And said, the demons told him, and this is his quote, her God said to leave her alone. And said, even in a backslidden condition, God still had mercy on her. And said, her God said to leave her alone. And that's why he struggled. He didn't want to make it seem like, you know, that her doing wrong, but what he was wanted to make people understand 
that God in his mercy just didn't turn a loose because they did. So in the end, when he finally submits to God, because there for a while he, he, he tries to straddle the fence, he tries to give himself to the Lord and still hold on to the enemy. But he said in the end, because he was, like I say, he's 25 years in the spirit world, in the demonic spirit world. He said the roughest time was 30 days. He said because the way it started, he said it would just be the presence. He said he knew it was the demon would come in his room and just stay there all night long. And his wife had left him, so he was there, and he had a girl. They had left him, so he was there by himself. Then the devil went to a, a shadow like a cloud, stayed in his room, then the demon took a form, went up to his bed, and would stay there all night long. Then the demon would lay down on the bed with him. He said he could feel the demon lay down on the bed. He could feel the bed compressed. I'm not trying to spook you out. I'm just telling you, we are in a war. The devil, the demon would lay down. He said he could feel the bed compress and would lay down. And he said after 30 days, one month, he said he was just at his wit's end. He said he prayed and he asked God. He said he just broke down. He just said, God, I can't stand this anymore. He said, I know that you are stronger than what I'm fighting. And he says, why have you allowed me to tolerate this? And he said, God told him. He says, I wanted to see how much you love me. He said, you gave yourself to this. He said, I just wanted to see how much you love me. And he said, from that night on, he says, no demon has never bothered him. He said, it's never bothered him. And so he gave himself to God and he goes around and he talks. He ministers to people that have spiritual problems. And it's just, we are in a war. So Paul went to him and he told him, and he says, I beheld your devotions, the object of your devotions. There were so many idols that was there. They was doing this. They was just giving their self. And they was just thinking that they was there. And then he tells them in 24, God made the world and all that's in the world, seeing that the Lord made the heaven and the earth and dwelling not in temple made with hands. And I would say, God... He's not going to dwell in a temple made with hands. He wants to dwell in a temple made with his hands. It's what he wants to do. And it says, in 25 says, he's, neither is he worshipped with men's hands. Paul is telling them, with all the idols you have, you think that is impressing a God with all the idols that you have made with your hands. None of that, Paul is telling them, is impressed God at all. He's not impressed by no mean. What God wants is your true worship is what he's telling them. That is what no idol that you have made is worship. God wants your true worship and he wants it to be in spirit and truth. Now, I'm gonna end and I want, I want you to turn with me to, and I just wanna just leave you a quick, a quick thought. Turn with me to Ephesians and I'll just tell you this in, in closing. 
The Bible tells us, Paul in his writings, where he's talking about the enemy we face. He's telling them about to put on the whole armor of God. He says to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, I won't go through all of these, but in reading these, which we have read them a lot, but I want you to take notice, the first one that he describes is truth. You must begin with truth. Number seven is prayer. I'm telling you, when it comes to fighting the enemy, when it comes to fighting the spiritual wickedness that we fight, you've got to begin with truth and you've got to end with prayer because prayer is going to be the bond that holds everything together. Prayer is going to give the authority in the name of Jesus that we need. And prayer is going to be the one that's going to give the power to the weapons that Paul has described here. We've got to begin with truth and we've got to end in prayer. That's what's going to make all of this jail. That's what's going to give us the hope and the authority that we need is going to do it. It's going to do it. That's why I have said, and I've said from here, in, in speaking, and in, in what I literally mean by this, I've said before, speaking of my sons, and just talking of my sons, but it, it just don't, it ain't just my sons. But I've said of my three, my three boys, they was born to Kenneth and Joy Rayleigh, but they was born to this church. And what I mean by that, am I trying to lock them into this local assembly? Not really. But what I'm saying, they was born to this doctrine. This doctrine is in their DNA. Nothing else is going to work. No other doctrine is going to work. It is this one God apostolic doctrine that they are born to. It's no use when challenged they have got to give just like the apostle Peter says. We have nowhere else to go. There's nothing else that's going to work. This is what I have. This is what I have. This is the truth and this is what I know to be truth. So when the enemy comes in and rushes in, this is our truth. We have so many things that we war against, that we fight against, and technology comes and fights us. But I'll tell you of a truth. We have, this is our safety net. We have so many people that's doing so many things. And, and, and just let me tell you this. It does not matter where technology takes us to. That is beside the fact. God has given us his word. He's given us a pastor. And I'm telling you, wherever life takes us, wherever technology goes, there's some saying in the church world, but we, mu- we must do this to adapt to the changing times. Don't never let that rock you. This will not change. The Bible, its truths, its doctrine, its standards is forever settled. It ain't going to change. If it was doctrine and truth 30 years ago, I don't have to go to him and ask him, but what about this? It's not going to change. It's the truth. It's, it, do, I don't have to try to look around and say, yeah, but technology has went to this. Do we need to change and do this? I know, I got enough sense to know that sometimes the method might have to change a little bit, but the message had better never change. 
Because when we change the message, then we make ourselves weak. We don't have the strength to overcome the enemy that we war against because in him is our strength and our authority and our power because the object of our devotion is the one that rolled him, roped himself in flesh and dwelt among us. That is our hope. That is our strength. Hallelujah. And I thank him for it. God bless you in Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.